My name's Matt. I'm a pastor here at Park Church, and we're just happy to see you all here. Um, I said y'all as if, like, I'm in, I don't know why I did that. That was not planned. Um, when, you, when you close your eyes to pray, when you think about the Jesus who's in your mind, I mean, who is, who is that Jesus? When you close your eyes and imagine yourself talking to Jesus, when you're actually talking, who is the Jesus on the other end? Who's the Jesus that you're following? Um, it turns out that who, who that Jesus is on the other end of the call, who you imagine, who you kind of are putting your hope in, if you're someone who does, it turns out that that Jesus, the image that we have of him, it really matters. It really makes a difference, right? Because if you picture, you know, ninja Jesus fighting off samurai, that's going to look like a different following him than the Jesus that we read about elsewhere, right? Um, there are extreme examples of this for sure. Uh, the name Eric Rudolph, does that ring a bell to anyone? A little older crowd, maybe? Um, Eric Rudolph was someone who identified himself with what's called the Christian Identity Movement. And he was someone who uh, believed, as part of that movement, that Jesus was really kind of a descendant of white Northern European people. It fit with things like the KKK. They liked Hitler's ideas. And they called it Christian identity. And his version of Jesus made it so that he put a pipe bomb in the middle of the Atlanta Olympics in 1996 and killed one person and, and injured countless others, right? Our image of Jesus matters. Or the extreme example of the fella, I think he's down in Florida, who thinks it's a good idea to protest uh, funerals in the most offensive way. His Jesus thinks that's, that's the right way to go, right? It's extreme. Uh, the other extreme, the Jesus that Mother Teresa follows, right? Tells her to go into the ghettos of Calcutta and give of herself relentlessly for the sake of others. Or the Jesus that Martin Luther King followed, right? Right? Uh, be on the side of justice and do it a certain way. Do it, do it without violence. The image that we have of Jesus, if we call ourselves Jesus followers, this matters a lot. Let me put it that way, a lot for how we live, for what we are called to do in the world. And our versions of Jesus are, are, are hopefully not as extreme as the first two I named, right? Maybe they are extre as extreme as Martin Luther King Jr.'s and, Mary, and Mother Teresa's. That wouldn't be a bad thing, right? But our image of Jesus matters. And whether it's tuxedo shirt Jesus, right, which sounds like a good one. He's fun. He's formal, but he wants to party. I like that. Um, I think I'm like that a little bit, you know. Um, that's why I wear long pants, but I like to party, right? Um, but, you know, there's all kinds of Jesuses that are floating around in our heads, right? There's hippie Jesus who all he cares about is peace and love, man, and doesn't, doesn't care about anything else, just peace and love. And there's good things in there, but there's also bad things. And, you know, there's Jesus that just want us to be happy. And if we're happy, we're good. Um, if we're not happy, then that's bad, right? And there's buddy Jesus. He just wants to be your friend. There's part-time Jesus who's cool with you, like, calling him up when you need a favor, but, you're not, but he's not interested in the rest of your life, right? And there's, um, and there's like, power Jesus who's kept, who's kept secure behind glass, or who's kept uh, encased in gold in ivory towers and things like that. There's needs defending Jesus, who uh, just wants his followers to go out and just, you know, ram their ideas or his ideas down people's throats. There's all sorts of Jesus. But if we're going to follow uh, 
the real Jesus, if we're going to be people who follow Jesus, then we need to know him as he truly is. And so the need to know that we need to know this morning is we need to know our Lord. We need to know who it is that we're following. Because the bottom line is this world is a challenging world. Whether you have faith or not, it's hard. And if you are someone who has faith, this world will not be kind to your faith. Um, what we're doing in this series is trying to uh, connect with a faith that not only can survive a world that's challenging, but can actually thrive in it. And to have that, you need to know who Jesus actually is. Because the bottom line is, a lot of the Jesus that we kind of invent in our head, or that we hear about, or that we get from culture, or wherever we get them from, aren't going to actually do the job. Because I just want you to be happy, Jesus is not going to come uh, in handy when the test result comes back positive and your life is forever different, right? That Jesus can't be there for you because he just wants you to be happy and you're not happy. Or the uh, I love you just the way you are, never change, Jesus. That Jesus isn't going to be helpful when, like we talked about last week, you discover that you are the problem and you need to change and life gets hard because changing is hard. That Jesus isn't going to help you actually become a better person or uh, change to be able to follow him in the world. If the Jesus we imagine, that we look to, that we think about, isn't the actual Jesus, then we're going to go off course. Our faith is going to be built on sand, and it will crumble. And eventually, it will leave you empty and wanting more. It probably will leave you mad at the Jesus who you imagine, but who doesn't actually exist. The bottom line is we're going to be following a creation, an invention of our minds, rather than the creator of the world, the creator of you and me, who is our Lord. And so we need to know who Jesus actually is as he shows himself in Scripture. Because when we actually open Scripture and look at who Jesus is, what we discover is he is actually better than the best that we could imagine. He is fairer and he is purer, as we sung about before, and he is more gracious and he is more kind and wise and more loving. And also, he's more interesting. And he's more challenging. And he's more engaging and inspiring. He's so much more worth following. And he, the real Jesus is the one who can make a real difference in your life. And in the lives of people around you, through you. And that's what we're after. And that's, that's actually what Paul was after when he wrote his letter uh, to the Philippian church. He wanted them to know who the real Jesus was so that through that community, the world around them could be impacted. And so the last two weeks, I've kind of given an intro to the letter to the Philippians. We've talked about it week after week. Um, Philippi was a colony uh, in like where modern day Greece is, kind of like on the northern edge of the Aegean Sea. That's kind of where it was. And it was, it was kind of a big city. And in the middle of this big Greco-Roman kind of modern city was this little church. Um, church is not a building. Church is a group of people. Uh, this little group of people who are trying to follow Jesus, probably not as many as people are in this room right now. And what Paul wanted for them was, well, he wrote them to encourage them to keep going because what Paul wanted for them and from them was he wanted them to survive. He wanted them to keep going, to stick together as a community because through them, Paul wanted to see the good news of Jesus, the gospel, go out to the area around Philippi and into the city and change the world. That was kind of Paul's strategy, right? And Paul said there are going to be all kinds of external pressures. We talked about that last week. But the one thing that has the chance to ruin 
that church, to ruin that community was internal strife, internal division. And so what Paul said to them was, here's what you need to do. You need to be of one mind, one spirit, one faith, one heart. And the way to do that is to get rid of all self-centeredness. And instead of being self-centered, what you need to do is be Christ-centered and have the same mind be in you that was in Christ. And that's kind of where we left off last week. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And what Paul means by that is not just your mind as in your thinking, but base everything, your feeling, your acting on what you see in Christ Jesus, right? So how you feel, how you approach the world, what you do, how you do it. Make sure that's based on Jesus and not just any Jesus, but the Jesus who actually existed in history and still exists today because he's been raised from the dead. And the image of Jesus that Paul is going to give us in a moment, it, um, for one thing, it's just amazing and inspiring, at least in my mind. But the other thing that's so fascinating about it is it so closely resembles the image of Jesus that we see when we open up the Bible and we read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. These were four people who wrote about the life of Jesus. When you read those Gospels, they're called, um, you get this picture of Jesus that so closely matches Paul's picture, and it's just compelling. Matthew, for instance, he was a Jewish guy who was a tax collector, which means that he actually kind of exploited his own people, turned his back on his own people, and his own people hated him and looked down on him. And Jesus came to him, met him, called him out of that life and said, come follow me instead. And so Matthew's gospel gives us a picture of Jesus that not only calls people who are um, in darkness over to light, but it shows uh, us a different way to live. That's just, that's just, it's so different than the world that we live in. And that's Matthew. And Mark, um, Mark was someone who probably didn't know Jesus firsthand, right? He was someone who kind of came after, but most likely Mark got his info from Peter. And Peter was someone who was a firsthand witness. Peter was the leader, and Peter was kind of characterized by making mistake after mistake after mistake. And so Mark's gospel is filled with the sense that to be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you have to have it all together. But it's about trusting in Jesus that he has it together for us. And you can read Mark, and it's just reflected everywhere in that. And then you have the Gospel of Luke. And Luke's kind of a different beast a little bit. Um, Luke was also not someone who knew Jesus firsthand. He was someone who came after. And if, in the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, he says that like, he did all kinds of research to get this right. A lot of people try to do research to get this right. Luke actually succeeded. He was a Greek-educated, um, probably physician, smart guy. He did all of the work to verify the sources to get this right. And Luke's gospel um, is just amazing in that perspective because it has such insight that's not uh, found elsewhere. And then you have John's gospel. And John was a guy who, uh, if Peter was the head leader, uh, John was the heart leader. John was close with Jesus like brothers right? Um, when Jesus died, he said to John, hey, John, take care of my mom. John took care of Jesus' mom. John, John knew Jesus like a brother, and his gospel reflects that. And when you put all four of these accounts together, what you see um, is reflected uh, right here in what Paul also has to say. Um, we'll get to why that's important in a second. So Paul writes, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who? Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. 
form of God did not require, um, regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Now, when we in English read that word form of God, that comes from the Greek word morphe, which is where we get our word morph from, which means to change into something. And when we think of that, we might think to ourselves, oh, Jesus changed into God or something like that. And that's actually not what this means in the original Greek. What that word morphe actually means, what Paul is actually communicating here, is that Jesus was characterized by the same thing that made God God. So whatever that thing was that made God God, Jesus had that too, right? He didn't change. It was whatever made God God, Jesus had that too. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus came to us um, not in the form of God as if he was like hiding or like a shapeshifter. That's not what he means. But Jesus came to us as God. Jesus came to us as truly God, as fully God, as God with us, as God among us. And the first thing that you need to know to know Jesus as our Lord in the way that he wants us to uh, is that he is actually God. Not kind of God, not a little bit God, not in the form of God in the way we think. He is God. And I don't want to take this one for granted. We don't talk about this explicitly too often here at Park Church, um, but Jesus is God. And uh, this is something that makes us, as Jesus followers, absolutely distinct from really the rest of the world. Um, for Jewish people, right? Uh, they believed then and they believe now that Jesus was a real person. Jesus was someone who was in some sense sent by God. Maybe he did some miracles, right? They believe that he was probably crucified on a cross the way that, um, you know, the Gospels all explain it. But to believe that he was God, that was blasphemous for Jewish people. That's out, outside of the bounds for Jewish people. This is one of the things that really makes us distinct from them. I mean, they are, they are our brothers and sisters, but we believe that Jesus is God. And they're not going to be able to say that quite yet, right? Um, but not just Jewish people. Roman people back then. I mean, the Romans, they knew who Jesus was. They're the ones who crucified him. They knew that he could draw a crowd. They knew that he could teach like no one else. They knew that he meant a lot to the Jewish people back then. They didn't quite understand him. But the idea that he was God, that was laughable in their eyes. Because think about the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. I talked about this last week a little bit. Um, those gods and goddesses could do awesome things. They were raining down fire right? They were controlling um, the water. They were, uh, you know, making the sun shine. They were creating fire, all kinds of wild things. And Jesus, on the other hand, he died on a Roman cross, something that they invented. I mean, he died on that in a poor, humiliating way as a common, powerless criminal. They laughed at him being God. And even Muslim people, I mean, Jesus is in the Quran. He's, he's, he's respected as a prophet in some way from God. Um, Muslim people believe that what happened to Jesus on the cross probably happened in real life on the cross. But for them to think that he was God, God in person, there's just no way that they would um, ever think that. So one of the things that makes us absolutely distinct is that we do believe that. We do believe that God actually came as a human being, and this ought to be enough to stop us. And just think for a second that God became one of us, right? That God became a human being just like you or just like me. If you were alive today in that same sense, he could have been sitting in the seat right next to you. That's how human he became. 
And so part of what that means is that Jesus knows what it's like to be a human just like you. He knows what it's like to be sick. He knows what it's like to be hurt. He knows what it's like to be disappointed. He knows what it's like to face the same kind of challenges um, that you face, except he did it without bringing them on himself, right? Or actually, no, he brought on the challenges himself. He did it without sin, though. That's a little different. But um, this is the miracle of Christmas, that he became one of us. But the thing that's even more amazing than that, perhaps, is the way that Jesus lived as a human. This is what makes it so um, unbelievable and so humbling that he didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited. When Paul says that, he means that um, his divinity, his godness, was not something that he was going to take advantage of for himself. He wasn't going to use it just for his own selfish gain. Because listen, he knew who he was. He didn't need to prove it to anyone through his powers or his might or his ability, right? He knew who he was. And think about how different that is than um, what you know of like the Greco-Roman deities. They were so insecure, right? They were volatile. They, they needed to prove to people who they were and how powerful they were. And that made life really hard for the people who, um, you know, worshiped those deities. And think about our gods and goddesses today. Think about the people, I mean, we don't follow them as gods and goddesses, but the powers um, that we look up to, who make a habit of flexing their might, right? Um, who want to show off how important they are, how strong they are, how wise they are, um, how powerful they can be. The gods and goddesses of our world today want to make sure people, people know that they're there. But not Jesus. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, um, he was tempted to use his powers in a way that would draw angels down to save him and show everyone who he was. And Jesus said, I'm not going to get involved with that. That's not what I need to do. At the end of Jesus' life, when they were arresting him, um, people came at him with, with you know, all the, the Roman guards and whatnot, and his disciples defended him with a sword, and one of them cut off the ear of one of the people. And Jesus said, hey, Put the sword away. Don't you think that if I wanted to, to be defended here, I could call on my father to bring 12 legions of angels to come and defend me? That's not how I'm going to use my power. There's something bigger at play here. Because what Jesus was doing, Paul tells us, he was emptying himself. He said, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, rather than use his power as God, his status, his, his claim, his fame to his own advantage, he used it to empty himself and took the form of a slave when he was born human. Rather than use the power for himself, he used it to empty himself. Now, does that mean, and some people think this, does that mean that he had like divinity stored up in him and when he became human, he poured that out so that he was just a regular person walking around? Like, that's not what Paul's saying. Jesus was a regular person walking around, but he didn't pour out his divinity. He didn't empty himself of his perfection. He didn't empty himself of his power. He didn't empty himself um, of anything like that. He didn't empty himself of something. He emptied himself, which means that he poured himself out for others. He poured his own life out for others, for us, when he gave himself on the cross. 
This was the moment where he fully pours his life out for others when he gave his life. Paul continues that thought. He says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself, became humble, so that he could go to that cross. He poured his life out and died one of the most humiliating ways that we could imagine dying, right? Out there in that hot sun outside of Jerusalem, hanging up there on the cross all day with the birds and the insects pecking at him, having to drag his own instrument of execution out of the city, through the walls, up the hill, right? Being um, stuck up there, enduring the mocking, the laughter, the ridicule of being made to wear a crown of thorns like you're some kind of a joke. Spread wide on display for all of the gawkers and the passers-by to mock. And here's the thing, he was also most likely naked, right? Um, our, the little crosses we wear around our necks and the paintings don't have Jesus naked on the cross. But that's most likely where he was. This was humiliating. This was embarrassing. This was as, um, as humiliating as you could possibly imagine in those days. And he poured his life out like this. And he did it. He did it for you. And he did it for me. And he did it for the person next to you. And he did it for the person you work next to and the person you live next to. He did it for you. That's Jesus. That's why Jesus came, to save you, to lift you up. There's another passage that Paul writes elsewhere. It's in the second uh, letter to the Corinthians, where he says, You know the generous act of our Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, yet that though he was rich, that though he had all the power, he had all of the authority, he had the status, he had the claim, yet though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor. He emptied himself. He humiliated himself. He gave it all so that by his poverty, by his emptying of himself, pouring himself out like this, by his poverty, you might become rich. It's 2 Corinthians uh, 8, 9. It's one of the most wonderful, quick explanations of what Jesus did for us. He humbled himself so that we might become rich. And so what does it mean to humble yourself. For Jesus, what did that mean? It meant that from his birth through to his death, his entire life, he counted himself with the lowest of the low. And as a side note, if that's where you feel you're at this morning, feeling the lowest of the low, if this is a time in your life that is just low, that's lower maybe than you've ever known, that's where Jesus went from birth to death, to be with people like you who are in places like that, to be with all of us because we are all in that place in one way or another, all of us, all the time. Think about it. His first breath on planet Earth was in a, a manger outside of a little town no one ever heard of with hay and with dirt and with germs and with, and with, and with cows and chickens and uh, animal dung sitting around. His first breath was taken not in a palace in the middle of Rome, not in the temple in the middle of holy Jerusalem with gold. It was in a manger, probably kept there in a feeding trough. That was his first breath. His last breath, his last breath was taken on the cross between two 
criminals who were rightly condemned for what they had done. His first breath was with the, lowest, with the lowest of the low. His last breath, surrounded by the lowest of the low. Criminals executed to death. All his life, he made it a habit of entering the homes of people um, who were notorious cheaters and notorious swindlers. And he went to their houses, and what he did when he did that is he brought them salvation. He made it a habit of sitting at the table and eating with people who are just classified as sinners. We don't even know what they did. They were just classified as off-limits for holy people. And that's what Jesus went to go have dinner with. Jesus made it a habit of going to people who were sick and getting up close to them and touching their wounds, taking their illnesses onto himself in a way where a religious or holy person would never go and do that. That's what Jesus made it a habit of doing. He came, he said, to seek out and save the lost. And so he went to the lost. He went to the low. He came not because um, healthy people needed a doctor, but because sick people did. And he went to the sick. And that's, that's Jesus, to bridge that gap between the very high God and the lowest of the low. He went from the very high and went to the low. He humbled himself, became obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. He bridges that gap for us. And it's so, it's so neat that he wasn't humbled. He humbled himself. We know what it's like to be humbled, right? When you walk into the pickup basketball game thinking, you got this, and you don't, right? When you walk into the job interview and think, I got this, and you don't, we know what it's like to be humbled. He humbled himself. Very few of us know what that is, but that's, that's Jesus, doesn't sound like the gods and goddesses that, that they were used to in those days. It doesn't sound like the gods and goddesses that we're used to, right? The gods of our culture who are on, you know, People Magazine and Us Weekly, right? Doesn't sound like the gods of our culture who are just um, built around world power and might makes right, or having enough money, or having enough celebrity, or having everything that we could ever desire. Doesn't sound like that. Doesn't sound like the God that maybe you were used to hearing about who stood in arbitrary judgment over you or who just wanted to punish you. Doesn't sound like the Jesus who we're used to um, where we don't have access to him because he's kept safe behind glass in some gold tower somewhere. Doesn't sound like the sort of Jesus who would uh, put a pipe bomb in the middle of the Olympics or would protest outside of a funeral for whatever. Doesn't sound also like a Jesus, though, that doesn't care about evil doesn't care about sin, doesn't care about justice, doesn't care about right and wrong. This Jesus cares about that. It doesn't sound like a Jesus who we could or would invent on our own. Because this Jesus, unfortunately, is not a reflection of who we are. This is a Jesus that comes to us almost as an alien from somewhere else, and we are constantly surprised by him as you draw closer to him. Because he doesn't sound like us. He doesn't reflect us. This passage reminds me of, um, of a story I heard on a podcast, actually. And uh, it was a conversation between two people who I really like. Um, one was an author, one was a famous preacher. Um, the author was a guy named Donald Miller. He wrote a bunch of books that were really great a few years ago. And um, the preacher was a guy named Andy Stanley, who was a kind of famous preacher. I like him a lot. Um, they were recounting the story when Andy Stanley... Uh, was asked to preach at President Obama's second inauguration service. 
um, before the inauguration, there was a little worship, sir, a big worship service at the church across the street from the White House. And they asked Andy Stanley to come and preach. Donald Miller knew someone in the administration, and so he got in, like there was a ticket to this thing, and he got in, and he was there. And he was asking Andy Stanley about it, and, you know, in this room, this was Obama's second inauguration. Um, so, you know, like you had the president, and you had his entire family, right? And you had the vice president and his entire family, and you had Secretary Clinton. I, I think she was Secretary of State at that time, right? Yeah. Um, you, you don't know anyway, so I, I don't know either. Um, <laughs> she was there, right? And her entire family, and you had, you know, Eric Holder, Attorney General, like he was there, and you have the rest of the cabinet, they were all there, members of Congress. What you have gathered in this little church, little church, big church, across from the White House was all of the most powerful people in Washington. Right? Power was consolidated in that place. Um, and he was asked, really, to come and give a sermon to the commander-in-chief, to President Obama. And the way that he started was basically to say, um, what do you do when it dawns on you that you're the most powerful person in the room? What do you do? What do you do when it dawns on you that when you walk into the room, you are the person who has the power, who has the most power? For President Obama, he literally was the most powerful person in any room he ever could walk into, right? There's, um, and when he's not in the room, uh, Vice President Biden, he probably has the most power, or however the chain of command goes. I don't really know. I'm not a politics guy. Um, and when they're not there, Secretary Clinton, she has the most power. Or um, Eric Holder, in his circles, he has the most power. Or the member of Congress from, you know, Omaha, right? In the rooms he's in, there's a good chance he has the most power. These are people who were just filled with power. Um, you and I might not experience power like that, right? I don't think we have any congressmen here, do we? No. Um, but there are rooms that you and I walk into where we have the power, right? Like maybe you're a boss, maybe you're a supervisor at your job, you have the power. Maybe you're a mom or a dad, you have enormous power, enormous responsibility. Maybe you're a husband or a wife. Enormous power, enormous responsibility. Maybe you're just the friend in your group of people who people look up to, who people listen to, right? Maybe you're a teacher, and you have an enormous amount of influence over the children who you teach. What do you do when it dawns on you that you're the most important person in the room? And what Andy Stanley said staring right into President Obama's eyes, is you use that power to serve others. And then he told a story of when Jesus was with his disciples the night before he uh, would die. Gathered there after a long day of, of travel, dirty everything, and there was no servant, there was no slave there to come and wash their feet. And what does the most powerful person in any room in the world, Jesus, do when he's surrounded by people who are not as powerful as him? He gets up and he takes off his outer robe and he gets a towel and wraps it around him and goes to the wash basin and he gets water and he goes down the line and washes the feet of these men who had given up things to follow him, who were lower than him, who continually misunderstood him, who would betray him not a few hours later, who constantly messed up, he went down the line and picked up their dirty and disgusting and grimy feet into his hands, on his own hands and knees, and he washed them one by one. That's what you do with power. 
And that's what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. Whether we know it or not, he hasn't literally washed your feet that I know of. But when he died on that cross, that's what he did. His blood washes away your grime, your filth, your mess, your sin, the things that you wish you weren't a part of, your unfaithfulness. He washed them clean. That is what you do with real power. That's what power looks like. That's what humility is. That's what pouring yourself out is. That's what being the slave in the room looks like. But ironically, that's God. That's Jesus. And that is who we follow. And therefore, the next word in this passage is amazing. It's therefore. Because of that, because Jesus emptied himself and humbled himself and was obedient even to the point of death, therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We might think typically that might makes right until the victor goes to spoil and believe me, it feels like that sometimes. But God exalts the humble. God lifts up the lowly. The poured out is refilled. The dead is raised. The one who gave it all is given it all. And therefore he is lifted up because he used his godness, not for himself, but to serve others. And so when we think about why we should follow this, this one, why we should look to him as our Lord, because he, because this is who he is. He is unlike anything else, anyone else we could ever imagine. Self-emptying, self-humbling, self-sacrificing for the sake of others, for the sake of you. He is a God truly like none other. Gives himself for us. And that's why we follow him. That's why we worship him. That's why we want to draw closer to him, to know him. It's why God the Father glories in him. It's why he is Lord. I mean, think about that title, Lord, for a second. Uh, in the Jewish culture, um, they couldn't say the word for God. They couldn't say the name for God. And so they substituted this word Lord. And, and so when a Jewish person reads this passage, they know exactly what Paul is saying here. That Jesus Christ is God. And uh, for the Jewish person, this causes them to make a decision about what they believe about Jesus. Is it blasphemy or is it what's true, right? But even more interesting than that, for the, for the people in Philippi, this was a Roman colony, remember, um, in the Roman Empire, there was only one Lord, and his name wasn't Jesus. His name was Caesar. He was the emperor. He was the king, right? He was the ruler. He was the Lord. And for Paul to write this, for Paul to write this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and that Caesar isn't, caused those Philippians to make a huge decision about who they were and about what they were going to follow and where they got their mind from whose actions, whose attitudes they copied and they modeled themselves after. Um, for us, we don't follow the emperor. We don't follow the empire, right? It sounds like a Star Wars reference. It's not. Um, we don't follow the king. We don't follow his kingdom, right? We don't pattern ourselves off of the rules of the world, we are called to pattern our lives, our hearts, our attitudes off of this king, off of this ruler, off of this Lord. We pattern ourselves off of the one who didn't use his power for himself, but who gave himself. 
And this is where for us, this gets just extremely practical. Like on the ground, we don't follow Caesar. We follow Jesus. We don't follow this king or that king or this ruler or that ruler, this party or that party. We confess Jesus as Lord and we follow him. And so our call is to let the same mind be in us that was in him, that we read about from him. And so this uh, leads me to close with two just really kind of simple questions. I mean, the first is, do you know him like this? I mean, do you know him at all? But do you know him like this, like the Lord who is uh, a servant, who poured out his life for you and for me? Is that the Jesus who you know? When you close your eyes at the dinner table to say grace, to thank God for the Domino's and the KFC and the Taco Bell, who is the Jesus that you uh, imagine there, that you follow, that you look to? Is it this Jesus or is it a different one? Do you know him well enough to have this kind of mind in him? If you don't, look, my challenge to you, or my invitation, is to come to know him better, to ask him, to show himself to you, um, to pick up those scriptures that I talked about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Pick those up and read them. Because the image of Jesus that you will see when you put your eyes to the page is so different than maybe what you were taught or what this world teaches or what we just imagine in our head. And let that image of Jesus, that he speaks to you through his word, let that change you and convict you and challenge you every day. Learn to work out your faith differently. To work out your salvation. That's what we're going to talk about next Sunday. So come back for that one. And then the second question it brings up for me for you, is how can you let this same mind be in you that was, that was in him? How can you use your power to serve others, your position, your status as a husband, as a mom, as a boss, a supervisor, the most popular person in your friend group? How can you use that, not for your sake, but to lift someone else? How can you humble yourself to get down so that you can lift someone else up? How can you obey God to the point of hurting? Because it hurt Jesus to obey God. How can you obey God to the point of hurting, to impacting your life, your wallet, your schedule, your heart? How can you pour yourself out like Christ did here? When it comes down to it, what Paul is advocating here is not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's not just knowing Jesus to know information about Jesus. It's knowing Jesus so that your mind is transformed and your heart is transformed and your actions are transformed and your life is transformed. And through that, the world is transformed. That's what Jesus, that's what Paul is going for here. That's what Jesus wants too. When it comes down to it, there is no way to better know Jesus, to better be on the same page as him than to learn to become like him, to have his mind, to have his heart, to have his actions, to have his love. That's what it means. That's what we do when we get the same mind in him, uh, in us, that was in him. So let's ask God together for that, to come to know our Lord better. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this beautiful uh, image that Paul gives in his letter to the Philippians. We thank you that through it, we can come to know you in a way that we can't without it, without the words of Matthew and Mark and, and Luke and John. We pray, Lord, that you would show yourself to us, that you would speak to us again and again through your scripture. We pray that you would show us who you are so that we could become like you, so that we could have that mind uh, formed in us that was in you. 
Because what we want here at Park Church, what we want is for this area, for Monmouth County, to be impacted by your good news. And so we pray that you would continue to form us in your image. Help us to see you so that we could be like you. Lord, if there is things like self-centeredness that are at play here, rid us of that so that we could put you at the center always. Lord God, as we uh, prepare to sing again, Lord, we ask that you would be present to us, that you would speak to us, transform our minds and our actions and our hearts. Show us again, Lord, that you are the one who has saved us. You are the one who has given it all for us. You are the one who has poured it out for us as our, as our Redeemer and as our Lord. We lift you up now and we sing to you in Jesus' name. Amen.